Today we're in week number two of our series that we're calling Shema. And Ross, last week we looked at this first word in Deuteronomy chapter six, verses four and five. This is a prayer that the Jewish believers prayed from the days of Moses all the way to the days of Jesus. They this was like the pledge of allegiance for for the Jewish nation. Every morning, every evening, families would would declare, would pray this prayer and declare your devotion to God. So this was something that everyone understood. Listen, O Israel. Here it is. Listen, O Israel. That word is Shema. The Lord is our God, the Lord alone, and you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. Ross, last week we talked about the word listen, Shema, which is why they call it the Shema. Today we're going to talk about the next big word in the prayer, and it's a big one because it's Lord. Today we're going to talk about what it means that they said, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. We're going to look at how the Jewish people saw God and how we should see God today if we're going to look at this biblically. And really to understand all this, I think we probably need to understand the word Yahweh, because that's the word we're talking about here. Yahweh is the name of God, the personal name of God. And when it says, the Lord is our God... That's the word translated as Lord. And the word God is a different word. We'll talk about that in a minute. The Lord is our Yahweh is our God, Yahweh alone. And so just just four words in Hebrew. uh, But the word Yahweh is related to the Hebrew verb to be. It's uh, about existence. I mean, it's the idea that God is eternal and self-existent. Now, what's interesting is that this word Yahweh, the, the Jewish people would never have pronounced the word. It was too holy. The name of God was too holy to them. And so respecting that, when the King James translators back in the 1600s uh, translated the, the word uh, Yahweh, what they did was that there's another word that the Hebrews would say instead of Yahweh, they would say Adonai, which is another word that means Lord, but it's not the personal name of God. So it's like, you know, just our Lord. And so the, the translators of the King James Version took the, let, the consonant letters of Yahweh and the vowels of Adonai, and they put those two together, and they came up with this word Jehovah. The J and the Y are the same, so Yehovah. And so that's like Jehovah is not really a word. It doesn't mean the name of God. This is, it really is a reflection or kind of a, an erroneous reflection in a way of this word Yahweh. That says the name that God said, I, this is the name I'm going to reveal myself to my people. And here's where, here's where that happened. Um, in Exodus chapter 3, God revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush. And he told Moses, look, I'm calling you to go and bring Israel out of slavery in Egypt. And Moses says, whoa, whoa, wait a sec, God. Um, he's thinking about all the things that would happen when he, if he showed up uh, with that message to these slaves, and they're going to ask, you know, what, what? Who's, who sent you? And that leads us to uh, Moses. God's interaction with Moses in Exodus chapter 3 is really where we understand the nature and the meaning of, of this word, Exodus 3. It says this, they will ask me, what is his name? And, and what should I tell him? They're gonna, and God replied to him, <clears throat> here's what you should say, I am who I am. Say this to the people, I am, and in our, in our Bibles, that's in all caps, I am has sent me to you. 
God also said to Moses, say this to the people, Yahweh, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. So God says, just, I am. It, it, I love this because it's like he's saying, there's no better way to explain who I am to you than to say that I just am, that that uh, that I exist. I am self-existent. I'm eternal. We'll get in, into all that here in just a second, Ross. But before we do, I, some of our listeners might be saying, okay, well, hold on. Wait a second. Hold on. I've heard about the Jehovah's Witnesses and even even Mormons and some some even probably some churches that are kind of on the fringe of Christian churches. They some churches say that there's a distinction between Yahweh and God. That, that Yahweh is different than God. Maybe you can give us some explanation of that nugget before we go on to see what the Bible actually says. Yeah, that's a great point. Some people identify Yahweh or Jehovah, the idea, with, with the Old Testament person of Jesus before he became incarnate. And they would say the, this other word where he says, the Lord is our God. The second word, God, is the word Elohim. Which some people would say, oh, that's that's the, really the name of God the Father, and so actually this this verse um, in the Shema Deuteronomy six, it kind of blows that up. Really, he says he says Yahweh is Elohim, and so boom, it's like no, there's not a distinction between somehow you can say, oh, those are the two persons of the Trinity or two of the three, and you can say, oh, those are separate gods or separate beings, and one of them's God, one of them's not, like the Jehovah's Witnesses say. Um, but no, he says, the, he says Yahweh is our Elohim. And so um, that kind of that really seals the deal for me uh, in that level of equation between the two. And Elohim means some other things. It means that, that you know that it's kind of the glory and the the majesty of God. Um, and so this is the God who created everything. Um, this is the God you know who like spoke and the world came into existence. But Yahweh is the God of covenant, the God of um, as he points out here, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one who knows you and who knows your lineage. So he's saying that basically. This is the transcendent, eternal God is the God who enters your lives and who knows you. Those are the two aspects of his being. They're not separate. So then let's summarize. So when when we read the word Yahweh or the word Lord in the Old Testament or the New Testament, we're not talking about someone different. You said the Jehovah's Witnesses say that that's Jesus in the Old Testament, not God. You're saying it's all the same thing. Yahweh, Jehovah, Elohim is speaking about God, and we'll get in here at the end. If listeners will hang in there, we'll talk about then how Jesus relates to that, and we'll talk about the Trinity a little bit. Yeah, I would say it's the undifferentiated one God of the Bible, without respect to his persons that exist within the one God. Yeah, okay, good. Now, okay, so now let's talk about what this name communicates. And the first thing is, it communicates that God is eternal. There was never a time when he did not exist, right? That's what the, that's what in part what the I am means. It's just an eternal present tense. Um, there's something about him. He just, he's, in fact, I think it, I think this points to the idea that God exists outside of time that God is not bound by time, that he simply is, perfect, period. And, you know, time comes and goes, but God doesn't come and go. And so 
Now, it's, it's important to say that not only that, that he's always existed, but he's always existed as God. And so everything that it means to be, to, to be God from eternity past, he didn't like become God at some point, or he didn't develop in his deity or whatever. The New Testament has the same idea. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 8, he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord God. I am the one who is, who always was, and who is still to come, the Almighty One. So Alpha and Omega, the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. We'd say, you know, God would say, I am everything from A to Z. That's why he says the beginning and the end. But to make it clear that he's, what he's talking about, he says, I am the one who is, who always was, and who is still to come. That's the way the human mind thinks about time, and, and he says that IT just transcends our whole idea of time. So then this is different than the God of Mormonism. We've talked about Jehovah's Witnesses, so now let's just talk for a second about the concept in Mormonism. We have a whole podcast called Unveiling Mormonism for our listeners. If they haven't ever checked that one out, we get into this in great detail. But in summary, basically, Mormons have this idea that God, that there's this eternal progression of gods, that whoever, that the God that we have now was once a man, and he progressed to godhood, and this is not biblical, right? The Bible says that God, Yahweh, is eternal. He always was. He always is. There was never a time when he didn't exist, and that makes him different from all of us. And and I think there's another concept in this idea of the I am that makes God different from all of us, and it's that he is self-existent as well, that he's not dependent. I mean, to say I am is saying, I'm not dependent on any other being. I'm not dependent on any other force for my existence the way we are, right? Ross, we're human beings, so we're dependent upon God, but God is different. We do not have self-existence, meaning that we would have no existence if God had not created us. And we would have no ongoing existence if God did not sustain us. And so we're totally dependent. We're what what uh, philosophers would call we're contingent beings, and so God is not. God does not depend on any other being. Does not depend on any force. God did not like emerge like the the mythologies of the ancient world um, talked about how the gods like emerged. They kind of developed out of some kind of chaos or some kind of primordial goo or something like that. No, God has always been God, and he, everything else that exists is dependent on him rather than any other way around. And so this is, the, this is something that uh, we have to recognize about the nature of God. We see that in Psalm 90. It says, Before the mountains were born, before you gave birth to the earth and the world, from beginning to end, you are God. You sweep people away like dreams that disappear. They're like grass that springs up in the morning. In the morning, it blooms and flourishes, but by evening, it is dry and withered. Teach us to realize the brevity of life so that we may grow in wisdom. So it's, you know, Psalm 90 draws this distinction between the God who is self-existent and eternal and us. We are not self-existent. We depend on him. We are, we, we are, you know, beings that really need his breath every day, even to exist. And it it shows us just how how wide the expanse is between humans and us. So th- this is, again, we're, we're looking at Deuteronomy 6. This is the first word in the phrase. This is just the Lord, Yahweh. So the Lord is God. 
But there's there were a couple more words in this. He says, the Lord alone, the Lord alone. So what is that talking about? How would it how would a Jew have heard that as they recite the Shema every morning and every evening? Put it in historical context, as Israel has come out of slavery in Egypt and they're going to take up residence in the promised land, Canaan, those worlds were populated by cultures that had dozens and dozens of different gods. There's a dozen Egyptian gods and more. And the Canaanite gods, uh, there's plenty of them. There, there's pantheons of gods. And so it's against that backdrop. God's saying, look, I need God's point of the Shema is calling for allegiance to himself. And so he says, look, don't give your allegiance to all these other gods. None of them measure up. The Lord our God, the Lord, He's the Lord, He He is the Lord alone. The word alone means one. The Lord our God is one, and so that's the way some English translations put it. So Moses is saying there's only one God. This God is unique. Um, every religion has some concept of God, or even plural gods, like Hinduism or whatever. Uh, but he said there's only one God who actually exists. This is the God who is actually real, and there's no other God that is real or that competes with him in any real way. Isaiah 44 says this, This is what the Lord says, Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord of heaven's armies. I am the first and the last. There is no other God. Who is like me? Let him step forward and prove to you his power. Let him do as I have done since ancient times when I established a people and explained its future. Do not tremble. Do not be afraid. Did I not proclaim my purposes for you long ago? You are my witnesses. Is there any other God? No, there is no other rock, not one. And so to be Jewish and also to be Christian means to know that there is only one God. There are not a bunch of different options. There's only one God. It's not this idea, Ross, that there's, well, there's one God for us, there's one God for everybody else. So this flies in the face of universalism, which is so f- popular today, certainly in America, this idea that, well, whatever you want to be God can be God for you. And whatever's God for me is, like, everybody can kind of have their own God, right? But but the Shema says, no, that, that that's not how it works. Ross, that's offensive to some people. What would, what would you say to that? Well, you know, I would want to treat other people with some respect and try to try to you know be kind to them and so forth. But the fact is that look, uh, this cuts pluralism, cuts the legs out from underneath pluralism in a sense because um, there, God says there's only one God, and that's the testimony that we accept and say, hey, it doesn't mean that you know everybody else is somehow inferior to me. No, no, their gods are inferior to God. And that doesn't mean like, oh, I can somehow be arrogant or somehow be domineering or, or controlling in other people's lives or somehow we're not create, create uh, some kind of a totalitarian uh, theocracy. But no, but this the fact is that, that, that every God is not, does not have equal weight. There's no other concept of God that actually conforms to reality. And so I'm sorry that that could be offensive to, to a lot of people, but... Um, you know, it is, it's the way it is. And so, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to take a stand for that. Okay, so then I can hear the next objection being this. Okay, wait, hold on. If the Shema says that God is one, then why do Christians believe in the Trinity? 
explain the Trinity and how that squares up with the Shema. You know, the Trinity is not forbidden by Deuteronomy 6. Um, it's not impossible. It's not taught there directly, no. But it's not impossible in Deuteronomy either, because the Trinity doesn't say that there are multiple gods or there's other gods besides one God. The Trinity, the biblical doctrine of the Trinity, uh, claims that there is only one God. But the wrinkle is that this one God is a tripersonal being, that this one God has eternally um, consisted of three individual personalities within the that share the same being, the same oneness of God. So I know that's a I know that's kind of a trippy concept to get our wrap our heads around, uh, but that's what develops over the course of the whole Bible. If you take the teaching of the whole Bible together, there's no single place that the Bible says, yeah, hey, there's one God eternally existing as three persons. But the Bible unwaveringly speaks of only one true God, not three. And yet the Bible also reveals the Father as God, the Son as God, the Holy Spirit as God and portrays them as distinct persons with relationship with each other, not just as separate roles that one being kind of puts on the the father costume and then the son costume at different times. And so we take the data of all the Bible together. There's a lot more we could say about this, and maybe in another time we will. But when you take the data of the whole Bible together and, and say, oh, the Bible is not going to contradict itself, so you're going to say, well, there must be this concept of oneness that's also consistent with a concept of uh, threeness, but it doesn't undermine what Moses is saying in Deuteronomy 6. Yeah, we have a whole series on the Trinity at PursueGod.org forward slash Trinity. We'll put a link to that below. But Ross, let's spend a little bit of time on that. So, okay, so then let's summarize the Trinity concept. So one being three persons. That's how I like to explain it in four words, the Trinity in four words, one being. And that's really what this is saying here. The Lord, our God, the Lord is one. So there's only one God in being. There are not three different beings that we call God. So there's one being, three persons. We use the word persons, God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit. So let's have, let's just have a little bit of fun with this. Again, just a little teaser. People can get into this more if you check out our our series on the Trinity. So then, Ross, what would you say to the objection? And we hear this a lot. Okay, well, then what about at the baptism of Jesus? So there Jesus is, he's getting baptized, and God the Father is speaking from heaven, and he's saying, this is my son, I'm really pleased with him, and then the Holy Spirit descends like a dove upon him. So some people throw a flag at that and say, see, look, that disproves the biblical concept of the Trinity. What's your answer? Yeah, actually, it's very consistent with the biblical concept of the Trinity, because the Trinity says there's one God who exists in three persons. Now, some people I've heard will say, well, what? Does that mean that God was just talking to himself? No, because that denies the distinction of the persons. God was talking, the Father was talking to the Son. And so it's important to maintain the the unique distinction of the three persons, but also to maintain the unity of the one God, the one being. So that's why we talk about being and persons, because we want to try to maintain this distinction between different aspects of that one being, that one true God. And the one true God, three persons, the persons are not beings, they're not gods. Each one is God, but they're they're one, 
one in all of their essential nature, not just one in purpose, but one in, in their essential attributes. And so the father was talking to the son at the time, but um, not to himself, but there weren't two gods that were talking at that time. So that's that kind of actually is one of the data points that helps us understand the Trinity, to say, oh, there is separate, distinct relationship between these persons within the one God. Okay, and then explain, explain this passage, because this relates to the concept of Yahweh that we're talking about in Deuteronomy 6. This is from John 8 now in the New Testament. Jesus is kind of having this back and forth with some of the spiritual leaders of the day. And Jesus said this, John 8, 58, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was even born, I am. And it says in verse 59 that at that point, the people picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus was hidden from them and left the temple. So what's going on here? What is Jesus saying when he says, before Abraham was born, I am? And why did the people want to stone him for it? It's not bad grammar on Jesus' part. You'd expect him to say, before Abraham was born, I was. You know, but what he's doing is he's, he's quoting and bringing into his conversation the language that we saw a minute ago in Exodus chapter 3, where God says, tell them I am has sent you. So what that means is that Jesus was identifying himself with the God who appeared to Moses at the burning bush. And that's why the crowds around him picked up stones to stone him with, because in Jewish law, a blasphemy was punishable by, uh, by death, by stoning to death. So they viewed him as committing a blasphemy. They understood that he was identifying himself with their God. And um, understanding that, then they thought, yeah, we better do something about that. And so they were not mistaken. Jesus was identifying himself with their God. And so this is the again this is the one of the data points that helps us understand the whole trinity that that Jesus is fully God he is he is the one God of the Old Testament but he is also this unique person from the Father and so in the Old Testament the differentiation between the persons as we mentioned earlier is not always uh, or typically made explicit it's not on the surface and so in the Old Testament, it's just the one God. And in the New Testament, we see, oh, we start to realize, oh, Jesus was incarnate, and he, God came among in, in human flesh. And so there must be something more complex going on than just the one God. So, Ross, so far in this episode, we've been, we've been talking about a lot of theology. We're digging into the Trinity a little bit. We're looking at the nature of God, which, by the way, we have more on this in our Sistheo series online at PursueGod.org. But maybe it would be helpful for us to end in, you know, thinking about application, because it's one thing to talk about the nature of God and who God is, and that, and that is what this really, that what this part of the Shema is talking about. It's talking about the fact that God is one, that he alone is God. There's no other God like him, that he is distinct from every other being in the universe. He is creator, everything else is created. But what does this mean for us like on a practical level? Is this just a bunch bunch of interesting information or should we do something? Does this apply to our lives in some way? Yeah, it does apply in a couple of different ways. 
that we could explore for for a minute because it's never just abstract. This is the this isn't just the God that is out there somewhere. This is the God Yahweh who's entered into relationship with people. And so he's the one true God, he's the only God. He invites us into covenant relationship with him. And so one of the, my responses is worship. He's so far beyond what I can understand. I can't understand that the idea that God could be three in one. I can't understand. Well, it's just amazing that there's this individual God that that is so perfect and and is the only God there is. So I'm going to worship Him and just get on my knees, you know. But I think another response to that, maybe that worship is part of this larger response, is reverence. I call it reverence. I'm not sure what else to call it as a capsule word that pulls together this whole response. And so reverence is a good is a good response, I think. Our deepest reverence belongs to God alone. We revere Him. We'll talk about what that means in a minute. You know, we're going to see as we move forward in the Shema that He calls us to love Him. And I think I think one way to talk about that is we revere as our reverence, our love, our worship, and all the rest is I could use the word um, reverence. And so, to me, this is the, the what he deserves above any other being, since nothing else is compares to him. There's no other deity that is like God. There's no other concept of deity that's like him. And so, we don't share the honor and devotion of our hearts with anyone and anything else on a par with him. And that, that's kind of, I think, what I mean by the idea of reverence. So, Ross, let's finish by going back to Mark 12. Uh, let, let's not forget that, that Mark 12, verses 28 to 30, this is Jesus' response to the religious, religious leaders of his day, where they said, of all the commandments, which is the most important? Remember, when they were asking that question, they're probably thinking about the Ten Commandments, thinking that he was going to come at them with one of the Ten Commandments. But Jesus didn't do that. Jesus said, here's the most important commandment. And instead of listing commandment one or five or eight, he, he, he quotes the Shema. Listen, O Israel, the Lord our God is the one and only Lord, and you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. We're going to be unpacking what all this means here in the next few episodes. But just zooming out, Jesus is, is essentially, he's breaking down the Ten Commandments into two sections. The first four are about God, and the last six are about people. So the first four are sort of like the vertical commandments. The last six are like the horizontal commandments. How do I love human beings? How do I have relationships with, you know, on the horizontal level? It's kind of like the ethical commandments in the last six, but it's all set up by the first four. And really, the first four are so perfectly summarized and just like knowing who God really is. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, because He is God. He alone is God. Really, the first four, just to remind our listeners um, what he says, he says, number one, you must have no other God but me, because he's unique. He, he's the only one. He says, don't make an idol out of any kind of image or anything in that, that exists. You know, He says, don't make an idol or bow down or worship it. We'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, he says, don't abuse or misuse the name of the Lord your God. It, that In old language, that's don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. I don't think that's about swearing or cursing as much as it is about saying uh, a fake profession of followership to say that, you know, I belong to Jesus, 
but I don't really act like it. That's kind of a misuse of his name. And then he says, remember to observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy as a day set aside to God. And so those are the vertical dimensions, as you mentioned. And so the idea of idols, I think that's interesting for us to think about what it means to love the Lord our God by not having idols, because none of us ever makes little statues you know, in, in, in our world today. But we can elevate something else to become uh, the place of God or to become like, ultimate like God in our lives. We all have things we're tempted to love and desire more than God or to give priority to above God. Maybe it's our, maybe it's even good things like, like my family, my kids, my spouse, or maybe it's things that are selfish, like the approval of others or success in business or my politics or a food or some habit or a drug or an artist, a musical artist that I really love or a sports team that I say, Hey, am I giving ultimacy to that thing in my life, to that person or thing in my life? Uh, can it is it edging God out for my affection and my loyalty? And then you know the idea. Um, I think that's really the idea of saying God alone deserves that place in our life, in our heart. And so that's why uh, Deuteronomy six really does connect so richly and fully to the Ten Commandments, expressing the idea that these first four commandments. What do I? What am I giving God? What do I? owe to God in terms of my honor, my devotion, my love, and my reverence. That helps us think a little bit more about that. You know, when I think of reverence, Ross, honestly, I think of churches that have grown, grown cold, uh, the frozen, frozen chosen, the people that, is, is this talking about like wearing suits and ties to church? Is this talking about having like, our, our worship services should be like funeral services because some people, maybe that's what they think about when they think about giving the, the one God reverence. Is that, because it seems to me like this is something that really had happened in, in the Jewish community at Jesus's day is they, they, they had this idea of reverence of God, but it didn't, it didn't really connect to everyday life, and I think that happens for a lot of, a lot of even Christian churches today, where one generation really loved Jesus, but by the second or third generation, now it's just a bunch of rules and regulations. And maybe we should end this episode by addressing that kind of religiosity and how that's not really what what is being called for here in the text. Yeah, that that's a great point, Brian, because I know in a lot of religious culture, the word reverence means, you know, kind of like I'm sitting on my hands in church, that I'm just like supposed to be super respectable and all the rest. So really reverence means that I revere God, that I treat God with this deep honor. Why? Because as we've seen, he is the real God. He is the one real God. Um, and we know about him. That The point is we know too much about God. Maybe we don't put it into practice. So reverence, this idea of revere, revering him or treating him with honor, that, that has to be in everyday life. That's not just on Sunday. It's not just dress up, wear a tie and whatnot. That's everyday life. And it re- reflects an, a, a humility before him. It's an awe of him. It's a priority of God, putting him above everything else. The rest of the series is really going to help us understand what that means. And so really, no, it's a whole way of saying, all right, I like to think about it like this. This is going to help me to think about it, is that um, when I fall in love with somebody, so when I fell in love with my wife, you know, I just, man, I thought about her all the time. 
and I wanted to like impress her and I wanted to please her and I wanted to take good care. And I, and hopefully all that's still true to today. It's still true today, but so she has this, this significant place in my life above other relationships. She's my best friend. All of those things. Okay. That's the idea. So it's not like, because I love my wife that I'm going to like, like sit in a funny way or kind of like the activities I have toward her. No, those are, those are, vibrant activities. Those are things that really bring meaning to my life. And I pour my heart and soul into those things. And now that that's kind of a analogy of what it means to have reverence for God. I wouldn't say maybe that I have reverence for my wife. Um, I do in some ways, for sure. But I'd say that I love her. And we'll talk about what it means to love God then next week. But that's the idea, I think, that that takes it out of that that religiosity and helps us understand this is a vibrant, meaningful, living relationship with this one being who deserves to have that our whole heart. So that's kind of what I'm, I'm thinking about here. The series is called Shema. You can find it at PursueGod.org forward slash Shema. This is lesson two. Join us next week because we're going to talk about that, the concept of love and what it means to love the Lord your God. Join us.